0: and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout
1: for joy, all you upright in heart. So I want to start the sermon like any good sermon starts with a story about my mom, all right? So one of, the, one of my mom, favorite attributes about my mom is that she feeds those that she loves very well. My mom feeds the people she loves very well. So when I go home for vacation, I gain like 10, 15 pounds. It's kind of shameful. Um, But in that context of feeding those that she loves, my mom within our family has developed a catchphrase. A catchphrase. It's like a catchphrase comedian type of thing. And uh, it's inadvertent, I think. But she says, it's good for you. It's good for you. And so if you are in doubt of whether you should eat something or not, man, I'm so full it's good for you is her her logic to get it in your stomach. Um, Let me give you a few things that she has said are good for me and my family. Her number one is butter. Okay, butter, it's a dairy product, so it's good for you. There you go, mom. Uh, You guys like the second one, bacon. Definitely good for you. All right, there we go. Uh, This third one, I'm not sure how you could applaud it. At one point, she told my, some of my nieces and nephews and my children that donuts were good for them. Uh, okay. I <laughs> wasn't expecting the clapping. That's new. All right. Uh, spaghetti, not like whole grain spaghetti, just plain white spaghetti. Good for you. Um, also, okay, sure. Let's just clap for spaghetti if you're Italian. Uh, spinach is good for you, so there's, there, she, she gets it right sometimes. Not always. Yeah, boo! Spinach, right? <laughs> um, anyway, why do I tell you that story? One, I love my mom, and I love how she feeds me when I come home. I love cheese ball, things like that. Uh, she's not said, she said it's good for you, but no, cheese ball, not good for you, but you should eat it anyway. Um, why do I bring up the story? Uh, Psalms 32 could be summed up this way. The psalmist is instructing us. It's an instructional psalm, and what he is saying is confessing your sins is good for you. Confessing your sins is good for you. Now, you might be thinking in the same way you think about donuts being good for you. You're thinking, okay, Ransom, confessing your sins is kind of embarrassing. It can be difficult. How can that possibly be good for you? And I want to say this boldly this morning, if, if our attitude is that, if our attitude is how could it possibly be good for me, that is a pre-confessional attitude. We only think that way before we've confessed. Before we've taken the dive, the plunge into that difficult uh, time of saying what we've done to God, do we think, man, this is going to be very difficult. But what the psalmist is going to show us is that the other end of that, when we've, we've confessed and we've gone through that, that practice with God on our own between Him and I and Him and you, it's refreshing and there's freedom. And it's renewing to our soul. And so there's three big reasons why we ought to confess our sins to God. We're going to run through those this morning. So the first reason to confess your sins, why it's good for you, is because it allows you to experience the deep, merciful forgiveness of God. When you confess your sins, it allows you to experience the deep, merciful forgiveness of God. Verses 1 and 2 is kind of an opening thesis statement for this psalm, and he, he is saying uh, that true happiness is comes from confession and forgiveness. That word blessed, we've gone over it a lot this year. If you're new, we've been, we've been going through uh, this last, I think, spring, we did the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and blessed is a, is a term that we went over and over, and really what it means is deep, true happiness, deep, true satisfaction. And what he's saying is true satisfaction only comes through the act of confessing and receiving God's forgiveness. So let's take a look at what it says here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. There's a few words here that that he uses to describe the act of God's mercy. There is actually a physical representation here. That first word is forgiven. Forgiven in, in 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 the Hebrew means to lift off to lift up. So the first thing that happens once we confess is God comes in and he lifts the burden of our sin off of us. There's relief. The weight of what we know we've done is lifted up off of us. Now what's great is he doesn't just hold on to that for like some sort of blackmail waiting for you to mess up again so He can put it back. The second word covered means he puts it away. And he doesn't just put it away and store it away for later. He buries it. He doesn't want to talk about it. It's gone forever. So you see, when we confess our sins, God shows up in this deep, merciful forgiveness. And he, even though we don't deserve it, he lifts the sin off of us. The burden is gone, and he puts it away for eternity. Isn't that amazing? And so when it says here, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, how is that possible? Because God's lifted it off us and put it away, and we don't have to worry about it anymore. That's That's a visible and physical picture of the mercy of God. Now he has this last phrase, in whose spirit there is no deceit. We've all, I hope, experienced that environment in our lives, where we can share our heart, share honest thoughts, or share um, what we're thinking, and there's no condemnation coming back at us. No matter how hard or unusual or even ridiculous what we're saying is, there's no reprisal. There's no blowback. In In those environments, if you've experienced it, it's refreshing to know that you can be honest, that you can be yourself. And what the psalmist is saying is, true happiness comes from recognizing that that's the environment that we have with our God if we are in Christ we can be completely open and honest about who we are what we've done, what's going on and there is no punishment no blowback, no reprisal no condemnation coming back at us true happiness, true satisfaction is recognizing that that is the environment in which we interact with God and then interacting in that environment. He goes on in verses three through five to give his personal testimony. Now, some scholars believe that David wrote this psalm about his sins with Bathsheba. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with King David, he committed adultery with with another man's wife, and then he had that man murdered. It's a pretty serious situation, all right? Um, And and, he, and definitely in Psalm 51, David is penning his confession to God. You can look at that. Uh, there's not necessarily enough evidence to say that this is definitely David, but what we know is that whoever is writing the Psalm, they've committed a specific and personal sin against God, and they are about to uh, go through the process of hiding it first and then confessing it. So regardless of who it is, a sin has been committed. We know this because in verse 5, which we'll get to here in a second, he uses these possessive pronouns, my sin, my iniquity, my transgressions, my sin. It's not this kind of aloof kind of idea of sin or or vague referencing something I may have done. No, he is owning a sin in verse 5. We'll talk about that in a second. But we need to understand a sin or sins have been committed. What happens next is he decides not to confess it, to hide it. It says here, for when I kept silent. He is recognizing the reality of what's going on, but he's deciding not to acknowledge it. There's a good moment for us to talk about what is confession. Now, in, in Scripture, you can find two important confessions. The first one, chronologically in our lives, we can read about in Romans 10. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. That's the first confession. To confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, I mentioned this last week in regard to something, but it's not as if when we say Jesus is Lord, it's this magical incantation that actually makes him something he wasn't. Do you understand? Jesus is Lord whether we recognize it or not. Jesus is king of the universe, whether we recognize it or not. When we confess that he is Lord, we are simply acknowledging what is already true. You understand? So it's not, we, we are not making something true by our confession. Our confession is acknowledging the reality. The same thing goes with our sin, our confession of sin. That's the second kind of u- a unique and significant confession that we have as children of God. It's acknowledging the reality that we have sinned. All these crime shows that we watch on Netflix, right? The murder happened whether the person confesses or not. The sin has happened whether the person confesses or not. And so not confessing our sin goes back to that verse 2. Not confessing is a deceitful move. We're simply not acknowledging what is the reality, When we confess our sin to God, we're simply saying, God, I have done this thing, and I'm telling you, and I'm owning up to the fact that I chose to do it, and I did it. So when he remains silent, he, in a sense, is lying to himself, and he's lying to God. He's saying, no, I know that I did it, but we're just going to pretend that it's not happening. Now, there's some side effects to this. He continues in verse 3 and into verse 4. So when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my, through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. There's three kind of manifestations of his silence, of his denial, of his deceitfulness. First, physical distress. We've all had the point, maybe, I think, that we've had anxiety to the point where maybe our back locks up, or our neck, we feel the tension... We can have panic attacks because of anxiety. So in, in one sense, our, our desire or our, in, our demand to hold on to our sin manifests itself physically. You're in a stressful situation whether you recognize it or not. God is calling you to, to confession and forgiveness, and your resistance is, is difficult on you physically. Then there's spiritual distress. He said, it feels as though the hand of God itself is resting upon me. That's a heavy weight. A heavy spiritual weight. When we know what God wants us to do and we refuse to do it, there is a spiritual distress taking place there. Now this last phrase is odd. In the Hebrew it says, uh, not my strength but my cake was dried up. Um, I'm not gonna say that not confessing ruins all your baked goods. but what, what cake stood for in this context is youth and vitality and energy and a, and a vigor for life. And so the way we can read this is not necessarily his strength, like his physical strength, but his emotional well-being. His mental well-being is severely compromised by his desire and his inability or his, his choice to not confess. So you see physical, spiritual, mental distress happening for this man because he won't commit. He won't won't acknowledge what he's done. Then thankfully, we have verse 5, and see that word acknowledged. I acknowledged my sin to you. I love that he uses that word cover, and I did not cover my iniquity. You see, God is the only one who can actually lift our sin off and cover it the sinner in this passage, the psalmist, was trying to cover it himself. He was trying to cover it up as if it did not happen. It doesn't work. And so he it's like a reveal party. He is, he is saying, God, you know what? No, I, I acknowledge what I did. I am no longer covering it. Here is the full brunt of my personal and specific sin. And here we get the, those phrases. I will confess my transgressions to you and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. The the psalmist relents, confesses, and what's there to greet him? Fiery judgment? Condemnation? No. Deep, merciful forgiveness. And instantaneously, these distresses that he's had because he's been holding on and trying to cover his sin are relieved and relieved, and he finds freedom in the mercy of God. It's a good teaching point. I was thinking in this moment, okay, so he confessed and then was forgiven. And then I remembered 1 John 1, 1.9, and 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, so if we confess then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so part of my journey this week studying this passage was asking the question, so do we have to confess to be forgiven? Do we have to confess to receive forgiveness? Because to me, in the moment, I was thinking, that seems like works righteousness. That seems like I have to do something in order for God to do something for me back. Like I'm paying him my confession and then he gives me forgiveness as a transaction. And so what I'm saying to you right now is, one, yes, Scripture teaches that we must confess our sin in order to receive forgiveness. But two, I want to I point out that that is not the transactional thing that we think it might be. It might be. Let me, let me paraphrase the Westminster Confession of Faith. Because if I read it, it'd just be old English and it would be confusing. So here's what it says. This is not the way we earn forgiveness through our confession. Confession is relying on the free grace of God in Christ. Confession is not a transaction where I do something for God and he says, okay, ransom you did confess. Was it sincere? How many times did you confess? How many prayers did you say? Did you do any good works this week? Did you read your Bible enough? Did you listen to praise music? Did you listen to 88.3? Like, did it, it's not like he's measuring and then he says, okay, here you go. That's not what, it's, what it is. This is the faithful recognizing that God is a merciful God and stepping into that, that flow of a river of mercy that exists already. And so confession is not just an acknowledgement of our sin, it's an acknowledgement of God's deep mercy that already exists, that was offered to me through the cross of Jesus Christ. It says here in another resource that I found this week, no one needs to compel God to show mercy. God is a merciful God on his own. He doesn't need me to do and work and behave in order for him to show mercy, Confession is simply my faith step into what is already true. God loves me and is merciful to me on the behalf of Jesus Christ. So do we have to confess to be forgiven? Yes. What is confession? It's an acknowledgement that I am a wrongdoer and an acknowledgement that God has deep, merciful forgiveness for me. That's what it is. We just have to step into it. So, first reason, confessing is good for us because it allows us to experience God's deep, merciful forgiveness. Secondly, confession is good for us because it allows us to experience the assurance of God's intimate care for us. The assurance of God's intimate care for us. Now this next section, the psalmist begins to speak to God in our presence as a way of instructing us. He's he's communicating with God directly in prayer, in our presence, so that we can learn from it. So here's what he has to say. Beginning of verse 6, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you, God, at a time when you may be found. Now this is an odd phrase. So when can God be found? Where can God be found? Everywhere all the time. Okay, God's everywhere all the time. Now, what he doesn't mean by this is now you have this kind of nonchalant reason to confess whenever you want, okay? I'll wait till next week. God will be there. That's not what he's trying to drive at. What he's trying to drive at here is that there is an urgent and open call, an urgent and open call to the believers in Christ, to children of God, to confess immediately. Why? God's here now. Confess now. God's available to you. Confess. So we don't want to have this system where we're building up our wrongs for like a week or two months or whatever and then we we dump it all on God. We have a God who's intimate and he's Emmanuel, he's with us. Why not confess? We sin, confess, sin, confess. I I do something wrong, experience deep merciful forgiveness. So there's an urgent and open call to confess. Do it, do it often. Why would we do that? He goes on, starting the end of verse 6. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Why should we be quick to confess to God? Because God is our only deliverer. God is our only hope. God is our only protection. And so to, to step away from him in sin and then hold on to that sin without confessing is to expose ourselves to, this, to the not safety of God's intimacy. We should constantly want to go back to God, back to God, back to God. Why? Because of the picture that the psalmist has painted for us in verses one through seven. Let me, let me run it back by you. So remember, we confess our sin. God, here's my personal and specific sin that I committed against you. What's the first thing God does? He lifts that sin off of you. The burden is no longer yours. And then, instead of holding on to it, he puts it away. He hides it away. He doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to look at it. All he wants to do is put it away. Why? Because that sin has been put on Christ on the cross. And then is so what we have here. Not only that, he doesn't stand aloof, kind of like, mm-mm-mm, you sinned again. No, what does he do? He draws us in close, in intimate care. He's our deliverer. He's our only hope. That's the experience of confession. It's not something to be to, to dread. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something to crave. Something to, to, to pursue. He lifts it up. He puts it away. He draws you in close. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? In verses 8 and 9, the author switches. So he's just painted that picture for us, and he's no longer talking to God. He turns abruptly and looks at the audience. That's us, and he says this, I will instruct you, and I will teach you in in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit or bridle, or it will not stay near you. What is he saying here? Listen, I've just told you what confession is like. I've just told you what God is like. He is merciful. He is kind. He is loving. He is gentle. He's holding you close. And what is he saying? Stop being stubborn. Stop holding on to your sin. I find, as I'm studying the Psalms this summer, I think they're funny. I think they, they stick in these little one-liners. Don't be a horse or a mule. That's exactly what you think. It's exactly what you think. There's other words for mule you can stick in there that might make it a little more humorous, but what, what he's saying is, don't be a donkey. Don't be stubborn. God is great and good and merciful and forgiving. Step into that instead of push away from that. As a side note, another mercy that God gives us is people who are willing to call us out like this. It is merciful for God to teach us what we ought to know. It's merciful for God to to show us the way we ought to go. God is our heavenly father, not a heavenly grandfather. What's the difference? A grandfather is less worried about discipline, kind of like whatever you want, son, son. A, a father is worried, and not worried, but necessarily he's concerned with, with the trajectory of our life. And God, in the Psalms, he's showing us his great goodness, and then he's calling us back to himself with instruction. That's mercy. That's mercy. Lastly, this is the third reason, as if it's not enough, why confession is good for us. It's the takeaway truth for today. If there's something you bring away from this. This is kind of the, the thing I want you to, to focus in on confession is good for us because it allows us to experience our true identity in christ our true identity in christ there's a not so nice thing we got to handle first we have this beginning of verse 10 many are the sorrows of the wicked okay the wicked's a rough word but it is what it is so we have to ask two questions who are the wicked and why should they have sorrow First, we're going to see more clearly in a second with the rest of verse 10, but in Scripture, the wicked, in one sense, is everybody. Everybody is wicked. We all depart from God. We all reject God, rebel against God. So this is not like an exclusive club where you've done something so bad, you're now classified as wicked. This is the starting point of humanity. We're all wicked. But in this context, there is a sense in which we can lose that title of wickedness and gain other titles. We'll talk about it again in a second. And so right here, when it says wicked, what it means is anyone who does not conform to what God has called them to conform to, which is trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Trust in the Lord. There is only one hope for humanity, and that is the, wor- the, the incarnation, the work, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. That's it. And so separating righteous, which we'll talk about again in a second, and wicked, the only difference is who has confessed Jesus as Lord and who has not. Who has not? That's who the wicked are here. Why should they be sorrowful? Romans 6:23 says this. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Think about it this way. If you have not confessed Christ as Lord, then there is no confession for sin. You need the first before you can have the second. And if there is no confession for sin, there is no forgiveness. And if there is no forgiveness, the wages of sin is what? Death. So those those people we know that have not confessed our Lord, we should have deep concerning care for them. If you are here and you have not confessed Lord, Jesus says, Lord, you should be thinking about this. There is a reason for me to be sorrowful because I stand before God without a representative that can help me. For those who are not in Christ, there is much to be sorrowful for. Lest we forget where we came from, Ephesians 2 reminds us, brothers and sisters, if we have confessed Christ as Lord, that does not make us better. That does not make us whole. That does not make us necessarily personally holy. But look at this. This is Paul in one of his more joyful letters in Ephesians, reminding Christians where they came from. And you were dead, and your trespasses and sins. That's not a great thing. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind we need to remember that that's where we came from because the next two words in this, in this passage of Scripture tell the whole story. But God. But God. If it were not for the intervening of God and Christ in our lives, we would be amongst the wicked. And so, we certainly the wicked have much to be sorrowful for, but why do we have something to rejoice about? Because we've been given a new identity. Not by our own work, I'm not better. I'm not a good guy, therefore God chose me. No. Christ pulled me from this and made me his own. Praise God, because I couldn't do it. What is that new identity? Here we go. I love how this passage ends. But, the steadfast, lo- but steadfast love surrounds the one who, what? Trusts in the Lord. That is the opposite of wicked. Not moral, not good, not good dude, not awesome. No, there is wicked, and then there are those who trust in the Lord in their wickedness. What else? Be glad in the Lord. Be, rejoice, O righteous. That's a new title. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Those of you who have done construction projects, you know it's important to have a, a wall that's flush or square. Upright in heart simply means your your heart is now square with God. It's level. You see, when we sin, brothers and sisters, we lose the assurance that these things about us are true. When we sin, when I sin at least, I think, man, am I wicked or am I righteous? Have I been saved by God or not? It is confession the act of confession that allows us to enter back in, experience God's forgiving mercy, experience his love and goodness, and to clear our minds, reset our minds to, oh, right, through Christ and his work for me, Ransom Kent, this is my identity, not the other thing. It clears up my view of who I am in Jesus Christ. So, as we look at these three reasons, I think, I mean, I think they're pretty plain. God wants us to confess. Why? Because it allows us not only to receive forgiveness, but to experience His deep, merciful forgiveness. And we get to experience His intimate love for us, and we get to experience our, our identity, our true identity in Christ. And so as we, as we think about those things, who wouldn't want to dive into merciful forgiveness? Who wouldn't want a, a God that pulls them close in, in, in intimate, gentle love? Who wouldn't want an identity of innocent, pure, just before a God who demands that? Who wouldn't want that? Everybody wants that. I'm going to go ahead and say that. I'm going to speak for all of us. We all want that. So what's the issue? Why, why do I resist confession? Why do we resist confession? confession. And I think it comes down to how we, how we confess. We've seen here already as we confess to God, we need to be specific and personal. Being vague is another way of covering our sin. You know, God, I'm an angry dude. You know what's up? I did that thing. All right, good. Not, that's not confession. That's me trying to kind of obscure it and say, you know what's up? That's not how that works. It's good to have corporate confession today, is that enough? No, we need to be with God and confess our personal and specific sins against Him. Guess what? We know what they are. Guess what? He, he knows what they are. He's not oblivious. Oh, really? Paxton, you what? I'm surprised by that. No, God doesn't do that. God knows. Let's let's stop trying to keep those two things separate. Let's go to our great, merciful God and confess. Now it's awesome is we have the Lord's Supper today. We have an opportunity to do that. It takes courage. But I think the other thing that's tricky is, if you, if you look at 1 John 1, which I referenced a while ago, I preached on this, I think it was a couple years ago, and the sermon was called Knowing and Being Known. And if you study that passage, God commands us not only to confess to him, but to confess to one another. And so part of confession is not just getting alone with God and telling what's going on. It's getting with a trusted brother or sister who understands the gospel and revealing your heart to them. That's part of it. There's a great, great, great mercy in confessing to those you trust and to those who know the gospel. Not only do they bring accountability, they bring mercy, tangible mercy to you and they can help you through motivation of remembering who you are and who God is to defeat that sin. That's a mercy from God that we have that. But I know some of you are thinking, yeah, Ransom, that's, yeah, that's a little too far. (laughs) I have a reputation to uphold. Uh, That's embarrassing. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Our small group uh, for the last uh, the last uh, ministry year had been reading through *Life Together* by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I'm going to sarcastically paraphrase a quote that he had. Um, he's talking about confession to one another, and he says this basically: "Listen, so you're telling me you're willing to confess to God, a holy, eternal God, who sent His Son to die for your sins." but you're not willing to confess it to another human being who's just as sinful and needs God just as much. What he says is, if that's your reality, really, you're probably just confessing to yourself and forgiving yourself. There should be some, there should be some trepidation and going to God and being specific and personal with your sin. Doesn't mean he's not going to have mercy. Absolutely, it's guaranteed. But if we will do that, but not this, there's something m- malfunctioning in our mindset. Personal forgiveness isn't the same as God saying, come close, I'll take that away from you. And the burden remains. If God won't condemn you, as Romans 8 says, for now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God won't condemn you, who do you have to be afraid of? Nobody. I I recommend going back, listening to that sermon, or even just reading 1 John 1 and getting a sense in the benefit of confession and fellowship and community in that area. I'm going to close this in prayer. As I pray, I'm going to ask the men who are going to distribute the Lord's Supper to come, and then uh, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper together as a family. God, you are a great God, and... I confess that I am not urgent to confess my sins. I pray, Lord, this morning that you give me an opportunity, the rest of us an opportunity to just step in courageously and to be personal and specific about where we have wronged you and that this morning we would experience what verse 1 through 7 explained, that we would feel the burden of our sin lifted off our shoulder. That we would know that you are putting that sin away. You put it on the cross of Jesus Christ never to be looked at again. And then you pull us close in gentle love and deliverance. May that be the experience of this time together as a family. As you partake in the bread and the cup. Lord, for those in this place that are still resistant, they're panicking even right now. Oh man, confession. Give them comfort. Give them trust. Give them confidence in who you are and their identity in Christ. And God, those who are here that do not know you, may today be the day that at least they start beginning to think about the truth that you are Lord. You are King of the universe. You saved us from our sin. You are faithful and just to forgive. And may today be a beginning of that journey. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.